Welcome back to the History Havoc Podcast. Once again, I am Eric Bynum, and I'm ready to do a little damage on history. Before I get started, I wanted to let everybody know that the podcast is now available on Apple and Google Podcasts, as well as Spotify. If you get your podcast on one of these avenues, be sure to hit subscribe. And if you like what you hear, don't forget to give us a good review so others can find it as well. Okay, enough of all of that. Let's get into today's episode. Everyone got their drink of choice. If you know me, I've got a nice hot cup of coffee. So let's wreck a little havoc on history. Today I want to start off with Greece before we move on to their neighbors to the north. Where we last left off with Greece, we were talking about the great philosophers that came out, including Socrates, Plato, and Aristotle. But another thing we must quickly talk about is how Greece became began to become divided. The alliance of Athens and Sparta versus the Persians started to deteriorate. Athens began demanding other city-states to pay taxes, and Sparta, among others, became resentful. Sparta revolted and began the Peloponnesian War, which lasted from 431 to 404 BCE. The name of the war comes from the name of the peninsula, the Peloponnese or Peloponnesus. Sparta, with the help of its Greek allies, defeated Athens in the war. But ironically, everyone lost. Let me explain. The long fight between the two most powerful city-states in Greece allowed another nation to take notice and eventually conquer Greece. Sitting and waiting for the right time was Philip II, King of Macedon, or Macedonia. Philip II's plan was to conquer and unite all of the Greek city-states before moving on to conquer the Persian Empire in Anatolia. He was successful in his quest, almost. By 336 BCE, he had conquered everyone in Greece but Sparta. He had sent numerous messages or warnings to Sparta, including one that said, quote, If I win this war, you will be slaves forever. End quote. He went on to send others, saying essentially that he would destroy the cities, destroy their farms, and kill all of their people if he was to win. But Sparta had a reply, as good as Brigadier General Anthony McAuliffe's nuts reply at the Battle of the Bulge when he was asked to surrender. And we'll get to that in a later episode. Sparta simply replied, quote unquote, if... Now that's classic. Uh, Philip II would never see his threats come to fruition. In 336 BCE, while back in Macedon for the wedding of one of his daughters, one of his bodyguards murdered him. It is unclear why he was killed, but that led to the ascension of Philip's son, Alexander, to the throne. He is better known as Alexander the Great. As for his upbringing, Alexander was taught by Aristotle, one of the great Greek philosophers. Aristotle taught him the works of Homer and taught him everything from history to geography to mathematics to philosophy in an intense three-year period. Alexander was a Macedonian soldier by 14, a general by 16, and became king at age 20. His father had once told him to seek out a kingdom worthy of yourself, for Macedonia is too small. Within three years of Philip II's death, Alexander would not only finish the conquering of Sparta, but he would begin a 10-year expedition across Egypt, Anatolia, and all the way to India. This created a massive empire, one that he is most remembered for, and at the time, the biggest the world had ever seen. He conquered Egypt and founded one of the most important cities in the ancient era, Alexandria. It would go on to become the capital of the Ptolemaic Kingdom after his death, becoming most notable for its library. That became the greatest library in the ancient world. But as the story goes, later on it was quote-unquote accidentally burned down as one man was trying to accomplish what his hero Alexander did by conquering Egypt. However, that is not entirely true. Julius Caesar did not completely burn down the entire library on accident. His invading armies might have burned down part of it, but not the entire library. In fact, the library declined over the years through lack of support and funding. It is thought that by the 260s CE, 
The membership of the library had ceased, and if it was still there, it was probably completely destroyed by the 270s CE. Alexander would go on to create many cities bearing his name. Some major cities today were once called Alexandria, including Kandahar and Bagram, both of which many Americans are very familiar with through the war in Afghanistan. Another one that is notable is Gaza City and the Gaza Strip. Alexander was a man on a mission, and that mission was to destroy the entire Persian Empire. The Greeks conquered the capital of Persepolis, and Alexander allowed his soldiers to loot the city for days. Eventually, the city would burn to the ground. It is unclear if that was a drunken accident by some soldiers, or if it was deliberate revenge after the burning of Athens during the Greco-Persian War. However, it does appear that Alexander had reservations about this happening after it was over. Despite his thoughts on Persepolis, Alexander set out to take down the Persian king Darius III. Alexander and his Greek army fought Darius III on several occasions. Several times Darius III had the larger army and a strong defensive position, yet Alexander's army won each battle. In fact, Alexander never lost a battle, which is one of the reasons why he has been dubbed, quote-unquote, the Great. Each time Darius would flee further and further away, yet Alexander kept coming. Eventually Darius had run so many times that his army was decimated and his soldiers were demoralized. So much so that one of his satraps, Bessus, set up a coup to remove Darius as king, eventually killing him and leaving him in an ox cart. Alexander wanted to find Darius III alive, but as fate would have it, he did not. He sent Darius III back to Persepolis to be buried in the royal tombs and given a proper royal funeral. Bessus, meanwhile, had changed his name to Artaxerxes V and named himself King of Asia. Probably not the best thing to do. He was hunted down, caught, tortured, and killed by Alexander thus completing Alexander's conquest of the Persian Empire. Alexander would only rule until 323 BCE, and we will get to why here shortly, but let's talk about his impact on society. This time period is known as the Hellenistic Era, coming from Hellas, the Greek name for Greece. During this time, Alexander did a lot to spread this new culture that was started. Hellenistic culture is the combination of Greek, Egyptian, and Persian cultures. He encouraged his men to settle and marry local women, thus helping to spread Greek culture. As Alexander moved his way east and conquered area after area, he was also spreading his culture. Greek became the common language across the empire, but he was fascinated with those that he conquered. He felt that knitting together the cultures would create a new multicultural empire, and so he began to take on some of their customs. He began to wear Persian clothes and wearing the Persian crown, which did not sit well with some of his oldest friends. Alexander even married into Persian society more than once. He married two Asian princesses, including one of Darius III's daughters, and even organized a mass wedding of Macedonian soldiers and Persian women, giving out large dowries in hope to solidify the union between the two cultures. However, within a year of the mass wedding, Alexander was dead. It is still unclear how he died. Many feel it was poison, but more likely he died of typhoid fever. There are many tales of Alexander that have been passed down, including the one of how he came to ride his famous horse, Bucephalus. According to legend, when he was a child, a wild, unbroken horse was brought to his father's court. He begged his father to let him tame the beast, having noticed that it was afraid of its own shadow. He would not only go on to tame the horse, but he would ride it into battle until it was killed in 326 BCE, in what is now the modern Punjab province of Pakistan. Alexander immediately founded a city named Bucephala in honor of the horse. In just 13 short years, Alexander created the largest known empire to date started a movement of a multicultural state by combining Greek with Egyptian and Persian culture. But all of that would be short-lived. After his death, his empire was split up into four parts. There was no heir to leave the empire to. His son, Alexander IV, was born to his first wife after his death. 
Eventually, the empire was split into four kingdoms of Ptolemaic Egypt, Seleucid Mesopotamia, Atalid Anatolia in Central Asia, and Antigonid Macedon. All of four of these kingdoms would eventually be overtaken by Rome, which is where we are headed next. Today, I'm going to hit on some of the key points and highlights, oh, and lowlights, of Rome. I will actually start with the Roman Republic because it gets a little credit, but there were some key moments during that time that helped shape the empire. I won't get too far in depth with anything, but I plan on coming back in future episodes in Season 2 to get more specific on some of the people and events. I'm looking forward to doing an Emperor Nero episode because he's one of my favorites. Anyway, back to the task at hand. Let's start off with the folklore of how Rome began. In 753 BCE, Romulus, supposedly the son of the war god Mars, killed his brother Remus and then named the city on seven hills after himself, Rome. These brothers were said to have been abandoned and raised by a she-wolf from an early age, thus the start of the city. The Italian peninsula did not hinder the people from becoming a close society like the Greek peninsula did. Yes, there were mountains, but they were not difficult to, tra- to traverse like those in Greece. Thus the three groups of people located on the peninsula early on could trade quite easily. Those were the Etruscans in the north, the Latins located centrally, and Greek colonists in the southern part of the peninsula. Romulus would become the first king of Rome after killing his brother, and following him would be a rotation of kings. By 509 BCE, the last king was overthrown. Many were tyrants, and the patricians, or rich landowners, decided that they wanted to rule, so they created a republic to replace the monarchy that had ruled for generations. Rome created a representative government, unlike the direct democracy of Athens. Here the elite would rule in a senate, holding tenure for life. Society in Rome was split into two major groups, the patricians and the plebeians. The plebeians were the common farmers, tradesmen, soldiers, and other common folk. They began to fight for their right to have representation in the Senate, especially since they outnumbered the wealthier patricians. Eventually, they would get their own assemblies and full citizenship in 287 BCE. The two most important people in the Republic would be the consuls. Two consuls were elected by the people to run the government and the armies abroad. One consul could overrule the other by saying veto, which is Latin for I forbid it. This is an early example of checks and balances in a government, something Baron de Montesquieu would argue for centuries later during the Enlightenment. But we will get there in due time. Back to the Roman Republic for now. At first, the laws were unwritten, leading to the patricians taking advantage of the situation. The plebeians protested and eventually, around 450 BCE, the laws were written down and posted for all to see. These were called the Laws of the Twelve Tables. Having the laws written down ended the injustices that were taking place in the judiciary system, and this would be seen in many of the later constitutions that would arise in later governments. These laws created a path for the emergence of lawyers. Some senators would take to bringing cases against the corruption in the government and could make a name for themselves. One who became famous through this avenue was Cicero. He went on to train both Greeks and Romans in speaking in the law. And just as a side note, every year I use a primary source from him. I'll post it on the blog and show you how I use it each year. During this time, Rome continued to expand as well. By 275 BCE, Rome controlled the entire peninsula, often offering citizenship to the conquered people in exchange for soldiers and tribute. Sometimes cities would demand to provide soldiers and tribute for the privilege of becoming a Roman citizen. Rome would eventually defeat the Greeks that had taken over part of the peninsula during the reign of Alexander the Great. Remember him from earlier? They would also go on to conquer Macedonia, and then turn its eyes toward Gaul, which is a part of modern-day France. Rome also fought a series of wars with Carthage, a city-state on the northern coast of Africa. Both Rome and Carthage wanted to control the Mediterranean Sea. Thus, the two powers would fight a series of wars called the Punic Wars. 
I'd like to eventually come back to these wars in a future episode because I'm fascinated with the Carthage general Hannibal. But that'll be for season two. For now, let's look at how the Punic Wars ended, and that was with a Roman victory. Rome defeated Carthage, conquering the city, and then destroyed it. But they went beyond simply burning the city, which they did. They also enslaved the population, and according to legend, salted the land so it would be infertile for years. Talk about being salty with someone. No? Anyone? Okay. Bad jokes aside, today the complete destruction of an enemy is known as a Carthaginian peace. Not exactly what I'd want to be known for. The victory gave Rome control of the Carthage lands, including northern Africa, Spain, and Sicily, giving them almost complete control of the Mediterranean. Years later, Rome would rebuild Carthage, and it would become a thriving city again. Actually, it would be the fourth largest in the empire. Today, the ruins of the city after further centuries of war and conquest, sit in modern-day Tunisia. Speaking of wars, let's talk soldiers. In Rome, males aged 17 to 46 who owned land had to serve in the Roman legions. Again, army service was tied to land ownership, but most soldiers were poor farmers. Many farmers sold their small farms to patricians and joined the army. The patricians would buy up farms and create large estates called latifundia. We have talked a bit about patricians and plebeians, but there were others in Roman society, namely slaves and women. These two groups had less power and influence on society. Most slaves were from conquered lands. They would help raise the children and oftentimes work on the large patrician estates, the latifundia. As these grew, they needed more and more workers to work the land, and slaves were used. Conditions for slaves became harsher and harsher as the supply increased, and really became harsher after the Spartacus Rebellion. Spartacus was a slave that led a slave revolt in 73 BCE. Roman soldiers would wind up killing thousands of rebels and captured another 6,000 who would be executed. One problem with so many slaves was it hindered the development of new ideas. Slave labor was so cheap, due to the amount available, that it made innovation less likely to happen. Slave owners saw little incentive or need for the development of new technology. Thus, little occurred during this time. Another issue was the decline of the small farm. There was no way small farmers could compete with the large latifundia that could afford large numbers of slaves. Thus, more and more small farmers sold their farms, or lost them during their service time in the military. Early on in Roman society, women were not citizens. They could not vote, and if they were married, the men owned all of the property. Some upper-class women received an education, and women could inherit property from their fathers, which gave them a little influence over their husbands. The Republic would stick around until 27 BCE. The beginning of the end would, could be traced back to the rise of one consul over the others when Julius Caesar started to take control. Julius Caesar, along with Pompey and Crassus, formed the First Triumvirate, a political alliance that ruled Rome for years. Caesar had gained popularity by his victories on the battlefield. He was the first Roman general to cross the Rhine when he built a bridge. The Rhine was seen as a natural barrier with the Germanic tribes on the eastern border with Gaul, where Caesar was successful in battle. In a move that showed the might of the Roman army and its willingness to bring the fight to its enemy, Caesar built the first bridge in just 10 days. With 40,000 troops he moved across, finding that the local tribes had moved eastward and prepared for battle. Caesar decided to roam around for 18 days, then returned to the bridge, crossed, and took it down. It was more of a show of strength than a willingness and a want to invade the Germanic tribes. Caesar continued to build up tremendous power within the ranks of the military. After the death of Crassus in 53 BCE, the Senate recalled Caesar to Rome. This was the turning point in Caesar's rise. He had two options. First, he could leave his command and return to Rome where he would possibly be put in jail for unsanctioned wars. 
Pompey was hoping this would be the case because this would then grant himself unprecedented power. Caesar's second option was to do the unthinkable and return to Rome with his army. So in 49 BCE, Caesar returned to Rome with a 13th legion crossing the Rubicon and illegally entering Rome under arms. This began a civil war that would result in Caesar having unprecedented power and influence. The ensuing four-year-long conflict would lead to Pompey eventually retreating to Egypt only to be killed once he arrived. As supporters of Pompey slowly lost battles, they either surrendered or committed suicide, eventually giving Caesar complete control. Caesar declared himself dictator and then dictator for life. But ironically, he was not the first dictator in Rome. The last came in 82 to 81 BCE when Sulla declared himself dictator. However, Sulla was actually given the title by the Senate, just a small distinction between the two. Anyway, back to Caesar. During his rule, he established a new constitution that he hoped would do three major things. First, to suppress armed resistance in the provinces with the hopes that it would bring order back to the Republic. Second, to create a strong central government in Rome. And lastly, to bring the provinces together in one cohesive unit. He also created the Julian calendar, which was used for centuries before the Gregorian calendar was issued in 1582 by Pope Gregory VIII. However, the Julian calendar is still used in some parts of the Eastern Orthodox Church in parts of Anabaptism and as well as by the Berbers. Eventually, Rome would name two of the months after Julius and Augustus, July and August. As Caesar gradually took more and more power, the power was essentially coming away from the Senate. This was not seen as a good thing from the viewpoint of the senators. Hence, some of the senators conspired to assassinate him and resume control. On the Ides of March, March 15th, 44 BCE, the senators approached him as he entered the Senate chambers. He was stabbed 23 times, including by his friend Brutus. Which reminds me of when Caesar asked Brutus how many oranges he ate, and Caesar's reaction was, Et tu, Brute? Okay, maybe not. That line translated to, And you, Brutus? And that was the creation of Shakespeare. It was not Caesar's final words. Sorry, I had to just knife that joke in there. <laughs> too, too much? Okay, I'm done now. Caesar's body was eventually cremated in the Roman Forum. The Temple of Caesar was erected later on the site, but only the altar remains. If you want to see what the altar looks like, check out the blog at historyhavoc.com. I was there last spring and took some photos of the altar, or what remains of it. After his death, Rome once again fell into a series of civil wars, as men fought for power. Octavian, Caesar's grandnephew, who he named his heir, fought Mark Antony, among others, before assuming control of the Republic in 27 BCE, naming himself Emperor, and thus ushering in the beginning of the Roman Empire. But that is where we will pick up in the next episode, as we begin to get into the Roman Empire, the Pax Romana, and the eventual split and fall. So stay tuned for that episode. And that's going to do it for now. Thanks for listening. I hope you learned a little bit about Alexander the Great and or the Roman Republic. Don't forget to hit subscribe. And if you like what you heard, give us a nice review. That helps others find our podcast as well. Remember, we are available on Apple and Google Podcasts, as well as Spotify. And I'm working on getting it submitted to other places where you get your podcast. Thanks a lot, and we'll see you next time. Mm-hmm.